let's get to it. Why don't you grab your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter one. Well, uh, last Wednesday night, we covered the genealogy section of Matthew chapter one, and, and I hope that it just helped us rem- be reminded, even as we looked at the you know, uh, various uh, you know, people of that genealogy, and then the, the ones that were omitted, um, which are interesting because there were reasons why certain names were omitted. Uh, and by the way, some of the Bible you know, critics will uh, you know, start to um, you know, talk about, well, there's a discrepancy in this number of people that are listed. And it says there's 14 generations, but there's really only 13 in one of the lists. Uh, maybe you noticed that if you were counting. Um, but then you have to kind of go back to the Jeconiah thing. By the way, when you come across these um, so-called contradictions in the Bible or, or wrong statements or whatever, um, there's always a good answer. Um, and, and you just have to do the work to, to answer those questions. Um, and I, I think you shouldn't be easily derailed by goofy things. You know, the critics saying, well, there's 13 people listed when there should be 14. Uh, and then you say, well, I'm throwing my Bible down and forget, forget Christianity because there were 13 rather than 14 in the genealogy list. That's ridiculous. Um, and people do that, it's sad to say, but there's actually reasons. And, um, and so don't ever uh, be too quick to judge uh, the, by those things. And there's websites. I've noticed that the, the you know, social media trolls, there's websites where you can just cut and paste all the apparent contradictions of the Bible. And that's what happens on Instagram. You post something about the Bible and then all the trolls will start, you know, here's a contradiction of the Bible. Here's, and they'll start, you know, posting them. And, uh, and some Christians are like, I don't know the answers to these questions. There's, there are answers and uh, they're not even that hard. And a lot of times it just shows the person's ignorance of the Bible. Uh, one of, I think I mentioned earlier, one of my favorite ones is when people love that, to use the book of Ecclesiastes to uh, sort of say, well, this isn't true and, and this is what the Bible says. But you have to remember Ecclesiastes was written by a backslidden sinner named Solomon. And that's the point of Ecclesiastes is he was messed up when he wrote the book. That's why we, when we went through Ecclesiastes, we had to warn each other off to say, now you gotta remember, this is a guy who's in a backslidden state. So when he says everything's vanity, there's nothing worthwhile in the world, is that true? Well, it's not true because he was a wacko at that time. Uh, and that's what he said. He wrote about it in the book of Ecclesiastes. So, so people quote stuff from Ecclesiastes, say, well, this is the word of God. Well, it is the word of God telling us what wacko Solomon said. Does that make sense? Uh, so don't be easily duped by these people that do this stuff. So that, that's one of the things why we went over the, why some of the names were missing in some of the genealogies. Some people think that's kind of tedious. But we also saw that, you know, that, that um, Dr. Ivan Panin's thing where he saw the, you know, the multiples of seven. And we even pointed out on Sunday, you know, 14 generations that were mentioned there. And, and we pointed that out on Sunday of uh, verse 17 there in our text. But, um, but all that to say, don't forget this. This is, this is what chapter one does for me. And, and it reminds me of 2 Timothy 3.16, where the Bible declares of itself, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. And the word perfect there is also better translated, perhaps mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Uh, the Bible is good for us. It's inspired. The word inspiration means God breathed by his Holy Spirit. Yes, men put the ink to paper, if you would, uh, but, uh, but it was actually you know, the Holy Spirit giving those writers of the Bible inspiration to write what God's word would say. 
So uh, all that to say, um, very important to let the Bible speak for itself. And that's what we do as we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And then, um, you know, we saw um, on Sunday, we kind of looked at Matthew chapter one, verses 18 through 25. And we looked at it uh, kind of zooming in on the person, Joseph, in the story of the, of, you know, the birth of Christ. And Joseph's quite an impressive guy, if you ask me. And we looked at that on Sunday and Saturday, if you wanna uh, back up and catch that uh, study. But there are a few loose ends I'd like to um, tie up here in chapter one, things to talk about. Let's read through 18 through 25 just one more time, just to kind of get back into the discussion. It says in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. So uh, we looked at that as far as Joseph's concerned, but there's some other things in here that are giant that we didn't talk about uh, this last weekend. First of all, let's talk about the, the, the name Jesus. Um, you know, what an interesting name. Uh, to us, the name Jesus, well, it has very much powerful meaning. As an American, Jesus pretty much means Jesus. If you're in Mexico, Jesus means Jesus, but also maybe the guy lives next door. Um, but it's funny, did you know the, the name Jesus? <clears throat> well, it, it's kind of funny, in fact, um, where this name Jesus comes from uh, in the Greek text. Uh, in fact, the Greek people would have pronounced it more like the, our friends south of the border. Uh, they would say the Greek is uh, Jehovah's salvation is what it means, but Jesus is the way they would pretty much say that. Uh, in the Greek uh, culture. In the Hebrew culture, the word, you know, the, the Greek word Jesus, the, what we would say Jesus is Yeshua, which uh, comes from the, you know, Yeshua, or even the name Joshua or Jehoshua. Uh, those are all kind of the same names and it, it means he is saved in the Hebrew. So Jehovah is salvation is the Greek form of that word. So just so you know, when we say Jesus, now um, one of the things you'll, you'll hear is some of the messianic churches, um, you know, people that are really into Judaism, but trying to kind of link it to Christianity. And I would just caution you. I, I know there's some really good messianic Christians out there in churches, but they're farther and fewer between I've found. There's a lot of wacko ones too, be careful. Um, and it's where sometimes these messianic churches, messianic meaning they're Jewish in origin that kind of believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And um, you say, well, that's great, Jews for Jesus, right? Um, well, here's the thing. Sometimes those messianic churches get into some weird trying to bring back some of the law. 
some of the festivals, like they almost say, well, if you really wanna be spiritual, you have to keep the Passover and you have to keep the feasts and the festivals. Um, and, and one of the things they'll often say to you and I is where you should really call him Yeshua. Uh, because that's his real name. Forget this American Jesus, you know? And let me just say, I'm a little offended by that because I was born saying Jesus. And I understand that if you wanna go back in history um, throughout the ages, if you're in the Greek culture, they called him Jesus. If you're in Mexico, it's Jesus. If you, um, if you were born in America, you sang the song, Jesus, 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 sweeter and sweetest name I know. You know, like it's something that's kind of, you know, we, it, it became special to us. Uh, so how you pronounce it, I'm not sure. Uh, you should be legalistic about that one. But uh, I remember we took our group to um, this one sweet Jewish gal in, in, uh, uh, this, it was in Timnah, down in the desert uh, in, uh, in the Negev. She's great. But she, one time she said, you know, you guys should stop calling him Jesus and start calling him, you know, uh, Yeshua. Uh, she says, it sounds so much better anyway, Yeshua. I was like, okay, now we're getting weird. Uh, but I, I get it, I get what she's saying, but, um, but don't, you don't have to feel bad. Uh, 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 but don't be legalistic about that one because I think that gets a little weird. So the, the, that's the name Jesus. But um, the, the, it, it, you know, here it's funny because they'll, they'll call his name Jesus, but why do we call him Jesus Christ? Like in chapter one of Matthew, in verse one, it says the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Is that like first and last name, Brett Metter, Jesus Christ? Um, well, no, the word Christ is, is a title. Uh, and the word, the Greek word for Christ is the word Christos, uh, which means anointed. So it's mean Jesus, which names mean savior and anointed. So when we say Jesus, the Christos, it means he's the anointed one. Um, which is uh, the word uh, that also comes from kind of uh, the idea of what Jesus would be as Jesus, the Mashiach. Uh, and, and Daniel calls him the Mashiach Nagid. What's, what's that all about? Well, the Mashiach is the word for Messiah. That's the Hebrew word. When you say Jesus, the Messiah, you're acknowledging him as the anointed one, uh, also Jesus, the Christ, as he's the one who's anointed, that's Christos. But when you say Jesus, the Mashiach, you're saying the Messiah, Messianic Prince, or even the King. Messiah really does mean King of Israel. The Hebrews during the time of King Saul would have called him Mashiach uh, Saul, because that's how the name was. Um, and also the Mashiach was referred to from time to time as the high priest of Israel, uh, interestingly enough. But the, the idea of Mashiach Nagid, that's where Daniel the prophet introduced it to us in Daniel chapter nine, verse 25. Um, when he said the Messiah, the prince, or the Messiah, the king, uh, would come, uh, Daniel's the one who gave him that sort of delineation. So the reason that's kind of important is when you say, when you say Jesus, that, that could be, if you're talking to any different groups, it could be anybody really. But when you say Jesus, the Christ, we know who we're talking about, or Jesus, the Mashiach, or the Messiah, we know we're talking about the Jesus. Um, and that's something you should know about as you're studying the Bible. So Jesus is his name. And, it's, and by the way, in Bible times, in, in New Testament times, Jesus was as common as Bob or Bill or Dave uh, or Joshua, you know, today in our culture. Uh, it wasn't a, a strange name. It wasn't a new name. It was very, very common, the name Jesus. So you have to understand, that's why you'd say Jesus, uh, you'd want to identify him in those days as something in addition, and they would. In the Bible, we'll see them, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, uh, Jesus, thou son of David, like blind Bartimaeus. He, he, he was referring to Jesus who is the Messiah, 
um, which is kind of cool. Now, um, now all that to say, uh, you know, um, this, this, uh, this idea of Jesus coming, well, that, that's the first thing that we notice here in this one. In verses uh, 18 through 21, we see that uh, his name shall be called Jesus, it says there in verse 21. And then Joseph did what he was supposed to do and called his name Jesus. So that was, that was uh, inspired by God himself through the angel to tell Joseph and Mary what to name their son. So that's the first thing you should just note in this, just the name of Jesus, kind of important because that's what our whole thing is all about, uh, who Jesus is, the Mashiach. Um, the second point, loose end, we need to tie up here is what's the big deal about the virgin birth? Um, why a virgin birth and what's the point? Um, and boy, we could spend a whole study, honestly, on this one, but um, let's talk about the virgin birth. First of all, the virgin birth uh, you can maybe jot some of these things down. It was hinted at in the Garden of Eden, um, where, uh, where we have what we like to call sort of the proto-evangelium. What is that? The, that's the first mention of the gospel is what that fancy word means. Uh, and we re read the first mention of the gospel is kind of in a cryptic way mentioned uh, there in Genesis 3.15. In fact, it says this, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, speaking to you know, the serpent who deceived the woman and got Adam and Eve to sin in the garden. I will put you know, enmity between thee and the woman. Uh, or by the way, do women and snakes generally have enmity between them? <laughs> generally speaking, I know there's some of you girls that like playing with snakes, but, um, but uh, not, that's not super normal. Uh, between thy seed and, notice this, this is interesting, and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Hmm, what a strange sentence that is that God, when God was dealing with the, the serpent and Adam and Eve after they'd sinned in the garden, the Lord kind of puts this, this sort of amazing statement. But to do sort of the Reader's Digest version, her seed is something that doesn't really work because the seed or the, the, the Greek word, pardon me, the Hebrew word there is the same word that they would use to speak of the male sperm. The woman doesn't have seed. So what a shock to the Hebrew reader, if you're first reading it, um, the seed of the serpent um, shall uh, you know, uh, be dealt with. It, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Would you have your, rather have your head bruised or your heel bruised? <laughs> if you had a bruised heel, you, you probably wouldn't like that that much. But, but um, the, the idea is um, there's gonna be sort of a bruising going on and, and it's gonna come from her seed. And that would be uh, the seed of the woman. That's speaking of the virgin birth because the woman doesn't have seed. We'll talk about that. But what's really fascinating is there is a study you can do uh, and it takes quite a, quite a bit of work. Uh, but you can look at her seed and the line of the seed of Christ, if you would. And you can also follow the serpent seed. Is there evil, corrupt seed that has been sown in the earth? And man, we can start talking about Nephilims, Genesis chapter five and six, and the seed being corrupted. And remember when Noah was chosen, it says he was not, uh, his seed was not corrupted. Uh, it's funny, people think well, Noah is just a nice guy, so he got to ride the ark. But the idea was actually more about his seed and his genetics weren't tweaked by the evil seed that had been sown by the serpent. And Jesus even talking in parables about the seed you know, of the word. And then the, the parable of the sowing of the tares among the good seed. And man, throughout the Bible, the evil seed versus the good seed is all throughout. And it's, uh, the evil seed is always Satan and his demonic 
uh, endeavors. And then the seed that's talked about here is speaking of the pure Jesus Christ who would come and he wasn't corrupted by the seed of man, if you would, because he was born of a virgin. So that's, that's, um, that, that's where this idea of the virgin birth was first hinted at that it would be her seed that would actually bruise the head of the serpent. Um, now, how did the serpent uh, bruise his heel? Anybody? The cross, exactly. Jesus would go to the cross, thereby having his heel bruised if he would, but in so doing, he was crushing the head of the serpent to, for death, uh, which is, that's, we know that story. But this is where this little proto-evangelium, uh, the first mention of the gospel is actually tucked away in this little verse. In fact, we did a whole teaching on this verse uh, back when we were in Genesis, you can look that up and uh, it might be worth a look if you're in, into that. We talked a lot about that. Um, so not only was it hinted at, number one, in the Garden of Eden, but number two, uh, the virgin birth was prophesied in Isaiah 7.14. And we talked about this, I think, briefly, uh, previously, not that long ago, Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. By the way, a Jewish friend of mine in Israel was saying, well, the Jews just believe you know, that this is... Um, some virgin girl that was single and a virgin, but she would be become pregnant. And there was no miraculous virgin birth. And the Jews just don't really believe that that's what's being talked about here, um, which is kind of a funny thing. It's part of the blinding of the Jews because Jesus was born of a virgin fulfilling Isaiah seven fourteen. The Jews weren't looking for a miraculous virgin birth. And they still aren't to this day. They're not looking for a virgin birth, even though that's what their scriptures say would happen right here in Isaiah 7, 14. Um, and so that's kind of a funny thing that they miss that. Now their eyes will be opened according to Romans 9, 10, and 11. God's gonna open their eyes and they'll see that Jesus was born of a virgin. So it's a fulfillment of, of real uh, prophecy. So, so hinted at in the Garden of Eden, prophesied in Isaiah 7, 14, but also required the virgin birth because of the blood curse. Now, I'm not gonna go into this again, but remember the line, the bloodline of uh, the King Jeconiah was in the line of Jesus. His line became cursed and it was the line of Joseph. Remember the genealogy of, of, of Matthew's gospel right here is that through from Joseph, uh, you know, from Abraham all the way through to, to Jesus the Messiah. But that line became cursed. And, and the Bible said, by the way, uh, it was, uh, we looked at this last week, Jeremiah 22, 30, uh, speaking by the Lord to uh, Jeconiah or Coniah, um, thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. So people would say, well, then how can Jesus be uh, the Messiah? Well, as it turns out, Jesus really wasn't part of this seed. Why? Because Joseph was his stepfather. There was no blood connection between Joseph the, uh, of Matthew 1 and Jesus. So he's, even though this, this genealogy of Matthew 1 gives him the rightful heir to the throne, there's no blood curse involved. Uh, it's kind of like the Lord covered all the bases <coughs> with this one uh, of, of the idea of the blood curse. So that's the idea here, required because of the blood curse of Jeconiah. We talked about that last week a little bit. And then fourthly, uh, the virgin birth, many uh, scholars uh, you know, ascribe the virgin birth to part of this idea that's true, that Jesus is something that's hard for us to reconcile. He is fully God and fully man. Well, how could he be fully God and fully man? The answer, he's God, you're not. Uh, and God can do whatever he wants. Uh, 
but the virgin birth sort of mysteriously does tie in. How, how was Mary uh, made pregnant? The Bible tells us by the Holy Spirit, which is really kind of an amazing sort of way of putting it. Um, his physical body, he received, if you would, from Mary, uh, but his eternal holy nature was from all eternity past. Um, Jesus was the same yesterday, today, forever. Jesus was there at creation. Uh, Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word God there is Elohim. Now, the singular word God would be El. Uh, Elah or Elah would be uh, two, but Elohim is plural, uh, two or more, or three or more, I should say. So how could it say in the beginning, God, all three of us, if we would, uh, created the heaven and the earth? The answer is the Holy Trinity in the Bible. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that's what we understand. And even here in Matthew 1, we see sort of the reason we believe Jesus is God. Now, how do we believe that fully God and fully man? Well, check out, remember, his name shall be called not only Jesus, but verse 23 in our text, it says, his, they shall call his name Emmanuel. I think you and I should bring that name back more than we use it. Do you call Jesus Emmanuel? Because Jesus is a wonderful name. I do love the name of Jesus, but Emmanuel is also a great name. Because Emmanuel is the name that says, God, God with us. Jesus, God became a man. That's, a, that's acknowledging that Jesus, he, he made the claim of being God. Remember when he said that and there were Jews standing around? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. And when, when Jesus said that, by the way, uh, the cults like to say, well, Jesus wasn't really claiming to be God. He was just claiming to be tight with God, united with God. Uh, I and my father are one, just like we're all one here, you know? Uh, no, that's not what Jesus was saying. How do we know that? Because the, the way the Jews responded. When Jesus said, I and my father are one, they yelled out, he makes himself equal to God. And they picked up rocks and were ready to stone him to death. They knew what he was saying. And not only that, Joseph and Mary were told his name, you guys are gonna call him Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus is God in the flesh, 100% God, fully God, but also fully man. And boy, the reason that's important is because uh, uh, it's gotta be God who dies on the cross for our sins, but it's also gotta be man who died on the cross for our sins. Sinless man, by, you know, by the way, but he has to be a sinless man dying for the sins of the world. And the only way that could happen is for God to become a man. So this is what should make you and I really happy that God came and visited us, lived among us, died on the cross for us, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and did exactly what he said he would do. Um, that, that's part of this virgin birth, is that separation, uh, that miraculous nature of who Jesus really is, fully God, also fully man. I hope that makes sense. Uh, if it doesn't make sense, don't worry. Uh, none of it really makes sense to me, honestly. I mean, I've been studying this all my life. Uh, but the, the mystery of the Trinity is huge. Um, um, you know, that's what Timothy said. Paul told Timothy, great is the mystery of godliness. Boy, I'll say. Um, and he says, God, which is the Father in heaven, manifest in the flesh, which is the Son. Um, you know, uh, and then and they said, born of the Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit. He says, that's a great mystery. Great is the mystery of godliness. I remember when I was 18, I remember thinking, I'm gonna nail down the doctrine of the Trinity. And so I, got, I went and bought a bunch of heavy books and some of the great thinkers and writers. And I literally spent like a huge chunk of time just saying, I'm gonna figure this out. Because I really was frustrated, honestly. 
Um, but here's what happened in my studies, uh, and I'm not you know, a great scholar by any stretch of the imagination, but I did read the scholars. And what, what I was kind of shocked at, all the scholars agree, yeah, the Bible teaches the Trinity, but when it gets down to it, we really can't, we really can't figure it out mathematically. And that's what all the greats really, you know, it's, it's just too miraculous, too much God level, outside of our dimensions and, and time and space. It's just way past our ability to discern. And you know what? I learned I'm okay with that. Um, and it's, it gets down to this. If, if God were small enough to figure out, then he wouldn't be big enough to worship. And that's why I'm not troubled by the doctrine of the Trinity, even though I see it in the Bible, and the Bible speaks of it, um, uh, I'm not troubled by that. Uh, and so that's kind of an important thing. Well, all that to say, um, so we got the virgin birth here mentioned, and I just wanna say those are some of the, that's by the way, not exhaustive. We could go into several other reasons the virgin birth is so important, but those are some of the big ones that I identify with and, and wanted you to see. Well, that brings us then to Matthew chapter two. Um, and uh, we, we kind of start to get into the narrative of the story just a little bit more. Um, we'll start with just verse one. It says, now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Like I said last weekend, Christmas in July, here we go. Uh, do you guys feel like talking about wise men and Jesus being born in Bethlehem? Well, we're right here in the scriptures. It's where we're at in the Bible. Um, but let's break down some of this. Like this verse is chock full of great stuff to talk about. First of all, let's, let's, let's kind of start. We'll go from, from bad to better. Um, but first of all, let's talk about Herod the Great. Um, Herod the Great was really an interesting character in history. Herod the Great stood a, a whopping four feet, four inches tall. He was a short little guy. Um, uh, you know, who's the shortest guy in the Bible? Not Herod the Great, Nehemiah, maybe? <laughs> I heard a guy say, I crashed in the back of a, a car at traffic light. A really short guy got out of his car and he said, I'm not happy. And I said, well, which one are you then? <laughs> That's horrible. I didn't say that. But Herod was this short, short little guy. And Herod the Great um, was one of these short little guys that was always trying to prove himself as the big man. Um, he had that complex, you know, where he wanted everybody to think he was big, powerful. And, and he kind of he was. I mean, he, he had power and he wielded it with great horror. And uh, people were horrified of Herod. Um, and uh, he always wanted to be seen as a big person. Uh, but he had that sort of ultimate power. Uh, you know, one evening he got upset with his wife, so he killed her. Um, and then the same night later, he killed uh, three of his sons. Um, uh, that's just a bad day. Felt a little bit guilty the next day, so he built a shrine for them uh, and all that. The emperor Augustus made a grim uh, joke. He said, it's safer to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his own sons. Uh, Josephus, the ancient historian, wrote about Herod. He said, Herod had an evil nature, relentless in punishment and unsurpassing in action against the objects of his hatred. Uh, he was just a scary guy that you did not want to cross. Um, his title, uh, Herod the Great, was given uh, by the Romans and it wasn't Herod the Great. That came from kind of his, that's what he wanted to be called, Herod the Great. But the Romans, interestingly enough, called him King of the Jews. Now, how did he get that title? 
Well, as it turns out, Herod, King Herod had just a little bit of Jewishness in his lineage, his ancestry. Um, and, but he was mostly Idumean, which I'm not gonna get into all that. There's, there's an interesting discussion about that, but the Idumeans were kind of a descendant group of Esau, uh, from the, you know, the Edomites and what have you. But the Idumeans, uh, this guy was sort of trying to, even though he was mean and brutal, somehow he wanted to gain favor with the Jews. Uh, and so that's why he remodeled, remember Herod the Great's the one who remodeled the temple. Remember when we went through all the temple periods and Zerubbabel's temple was kind of a just thrown together temple during time of real duress? Well, Herod the Great started there just before Jesus came on the scene and remodeled the temple. Uh, and it was quite amazing, this beautiful uh, work that Herod the Great did to try to sort of woo the Jews back to more his side. Did that work? No. Um, he was always doing stuff though that made the Jews really hate him. Uh, so he, he was trying to make them happy, but then he'd do something and the Jews would say, yeah, we pretty much still hate you. Um, with all the tyrannical kind of things Herod the Great did, one thing you gotta give him credit for actually is all the architecture and building this guy did. He was, he was really into advancing building and did some kind of amazing thing. You know, um, uh, the aqueducts, or the, the went, uh, you know, there, there's aqueducts in the Middle East that, that Herod the Great built that went for miles and miles and miles. Uh, there's one aqueduct we visit there on the shore of Caesarea, and it's kind of a fun place to visit because it's, it's an aqueduct that's just kind of sitting on the beach, going all the way up the coast, you know, like 50 miles. And, and, um, and the thing that's interesting about that aqueduct is there's one section, I think it's a 10-mile section, that they were able to make it so that it, the, the, the fall, so that the water would flow downhill. They need to make sure it kept falling, you know, so that the water would flow. The fall at about a 10 mile stretch, the, the aqueduct people made it about a half inch in a 10 mile. Uh, d d like, like, could we even do that today with all of our, you know, lasers and transits and satellites and, you know, whatever? It, it makes you wonder, could we get a half inch difference in a 10 mile stretch? But there's some kind of amazing things that Herod the Great did. The aqueducts, um, we, we visit those sometimes. Um, uh, but, but as it turns out, uh, there's a couple things that are kind of important. He did the temple, uh, 14 stories high was the temple there on the Temple Mount. He also built Masada. Um, but one of, the, one of the things that's kind of linked um, closer to the birth of Christ is a place called the Herodian. Um, now this is kind of fun because the last time I taught this way back in 2008, I think is what it was. Last time we were in Matthew. Um, I didn't have this to tell because nobody knew what it was at that time. Since then, there were some archeological digs in this really weird cone-shaped mountain just outside of Bethlehem. And everybody wondered what this cone-shaped thing was, but they started to do digs and they realized they found a sarcophagus and they found the actual very sarcophagus, or you might say in our terms, coffin, um, that held Herod the Great's bones. They found that very sarcophagus right there on this cone-shaped mountain. And they realized that this cone-shaped mountain was the place they called, some people called it the Tower of Herod, but, but it was really called the Herodian. It's the only thing King Herod the Great called after his own name. It's kind of like his favorite project was the Herodian. Uh, I, I was up there a few years ago. Um, and so I wanna show you just a short video of this because uh, um, this is kind of an amazing thing. And it, and it does have to do with Jerusalem and Bethlehem and the birth of Christ. So check out this little video we did of the Herodian. Uh, it's in the West Bank. This is where you kind of need to get an armored vehicle. 
It's a great spot that we're at here at the Herodian where um, Herod built one of his masterpieces. He was famous for building, uh, but he was also fairly infamous. Uh, in fact, it was Augustus who said it would be better to be Herod's pig than to be his son uh, because he killed his family members. It was kind of a, uh, a little bit crazy on that side, but the, the other side of the coin, he built these luxurious palaces and fortresses, uh, Masada, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Um, but probably his, his uh, pinnacle of his building was this mount that was only half as high as it is today. He built it up so high so that he could look from his palace here and see the Temple Mount uh, from this spot. Uh, he built a palace, but it was also a fortress. But he, he was very much into luxury uh, and lived large uh, up here. And, uh, and this spot is where Herod the Great chose to be buried. Uh, the thing that kind of turned the, this into his spot was his mother was riding her chariot uh, on this region and, and her chariot was turned over and she died there. And he, uh, he got to that point where he wanted to die. He loved his mother so much. So he chose to make this his place uh, and he named it after himself. It was the first place that he actually put his name on it. Uh, that's the one that he chose for his, his mark on the world. It was shortly after that in uh, around AD 71 when uh, they came and destroyed this whole thing and the, the zealots came and wiped out uh, Herod's tomb um, and it was pretty much so demolished that they really didn't even find this place until 2007. But it's an amazing archaeological dig. Uh, tunnels, uh, amazing uh, construction. It's kind of a blast checking this place out. So if you're ever over in Israel and you get a chance to go into the West Bank there, you, this is worth a uh, a little trip up there. Basically, when Herod went out there uh, and said, I want to build uh, my thing here and I want to be able to see Jerusalem, the, the engineers and architects and all said, you'd have to build like this huge mountain here and get it up, you know, 1,500 feet or whatever. And he's like, exactly. And so they got, you know, they had a lot of slaves. So they, they got slaves to just haul tons of dirt. And it, when you see the mountain, you're like, man, I can't believe people built that. It's, it's kind of an incredible thing. It'd be weird just to see something in modern time built that huge. Uh, but they, they had a lot of people and they weren't worried about them dying in the process, especially Herod. But, um, but Herod, Herod the Great, on his deathbed, he was so afraid that he was so hated by the people that no one would actually mourn his death. Um, so... Um, uh, you know, he wanted to uh, have people grieve on the day of his death. So as he was getting, you know, sick in his deathbed, um, he, he uh, arrested, he had, had his military go around and arrest the most popular, best looking, most promising young men in, in that. A hundred of them in number, rounded them up and put them in prison. And he made this command, upon his death, all 100 of them will be executed so that everybody will be sure to be mourning on the day of his death. That's the kind of guy he was. Um, now, good news, the day he kicked the bucket, they let all the guys go and said, no problem, he's dead, you guys are free. Um, <laughs> it didn't work out the way Herod wanted it to. But, um, but all that to say, you know, um, you know the, the idea of Herod the Great, when we read about what he's gonna do here in chapter two, you think, man, who in the world would do such a horrible thing? Well, th I, you gotta understand, this was kind of his MO. He, he just killed people, did stuff uh, that was just horrible. Um, and this was a very evil, evil man. And we'll see that as we get into it. Now let's talk about the next group of people here is the Magi uh, that are mentioned here. It says, um, behold, there came wise men, or some of your translations say Magi or more in the original, 
Um, who were these wise men? Question, how many of them were, were there? <laughs> Some people said three. I heard that in there. Well, if you, if you really let Hallmark be your uh, doctrinal, you'll say three. And, and we've all been very convinced. Oh, there must've been three wise men because the, we see the three wise men and the, there are songs we sang about the three wise men. But the Bible doesn't tell us how many wise men. There could have been 300. Uh, there could have been 3,000. We have no idea how many wise men came. That's kind of important. Um, but these guys, they were kind of an interesting group of, of people. Um, uh, and and they, they probably came with a huge entourage. You know, it wasn't uh, unusual when a person would, or a group of people would make a trek across the desert, they'd come in a group. But um, they were called Parthians, actually. Uh, they were part Persian, part Parthian Empire, um, and that would be east of all the Roman Empire, the Parthian Empire. Um, and um, the buffer zone would be Iraq, uh, right between, uh, you know, what was, is kind of Iran. Uh, and it's not that far from Afghanistan, actually. So, so some of our military personnel in here, you've probably been close to where some of these people were from. But who were they? What were they into? These were, they were called wise men, and that sounds so hallmark and good, but the reason they're also, the original language here says magi, it's where we get our magician word. They were magicians. Uh, that's kind of their idea. They were into magic, but they were actually uh, into um, uh, what they call oneromancy, uh, oneromancy, which is interpreting dreams and, and with a minor in astrology. You say, well, why would God choose these guys to show up? Or what's the deal with these guys showing up to see Jesus the Messiah? Guys that are into interpreting dreams and magic. Uh, they're kind of like sorcerer type dudes. How are they brought into the deal? But you know, I think it's interesting. The Lord's gonna use these wise men in the story. Um, and I, I think that that's kind of a cool thing because um, they're coming to search for the king of the Jews and they're, they're coming to meet this Messiah that's supposed to be of the Jews. Now, here's a question. How in the world do these guys from, you know, the, the way in the Far East area, where did they get the idea? Did they have the, you know, the Hebrew Bible to teach them about the coming Messiah of the Jews? Well, the answer is probably yes. Anybody wanna take a stab? Where do you think they got this idea of the, the wise men coming to, where did these wise men come, get the idea to come and see the king of the Jews? Daniel, right? Daniel or his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or maybe some of the other Jews. Remember, the Jews were in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Then a tiny remnant of them came back to Israel when they were let go, but most of them stayed in Babylon. Um, and, and this is several hundred years later, and now the, these guys have an education. They, they're, they're looking for the king of the Jews. Why would they be searching? Why would, why would they um, you know, uh, care about this? I think it's interesting. These, these guys that were into all this weird stuff, they're seeking the Lord. And what's interesting is when you seek the Lord, the Bible says you will find the Lord. Um, I don't care what background you come from. You might come from all kinds of craziness. But good news, if you're honestly seeking the truth and seeking the Lord, I think you'll find the truth. These guys are a great example of that. So, um, you know, Daniel would have, by the way, probably been grouped in this group. Remember when it says they called Daniel and the wise men, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers? Those are the guys we're talking about when, when we refer to these magi from probably Babylon. Um, and maybe these guys remembered, you know, Daniel's teaching 500 years earlier. Um, and... Um, and you know, it's interesting because I love that even though 500 years go by, these guys still are interested. 
And who knows what the Lord will do with the words you share. Even I wonder if Daniel thought, man, I'm talking to these Babylonians. They could care less about the Messiah and the coming of, you know, remember Daniel's the one who said the Mashiach Nagid. He's the one who said that. The Messiah, the prince is coming. I wonder if Daniel ever thought, what a waste of time talking to these pagan magi dudes from Babylon. But we know now that those were little time bombs planted in the magi or the wise men of Babylon that actually stuck for 500 years enough to where they would travel hundreds and hundreds of miles across the desert. Do you realize how hard that would be? No AC, uh, you know, on a camel hiking through the desert for hundreds. And I, this probably, some people say this journey could have taken them over a year just to get to this place where they're saying, hey, anybody know what's going on here? You know, it's kind of an amazing thing that these guys uh, ended up coming. And, and the reason I say that is because some of you might think, well, what a waste of time sharing Jesus with this group of people, they'll never believe. But there's one thing I've learned for certain as a, as a Christian who's been walking with the Lord now for a long time, is the people that you share with, you never know what kind of seed you're planting in their heart for them to later actually come and actually meet Jesus and know Jesus. So don't ever give up on that. Um, I think this is a good reminder of that. But, um, but all that to say, uh, the, the, these guys are kind of amazing guys. We'll see more of them here as we get going. And then it says, another thing we should probably focus on in verse one, now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, um, just that alone should make us, our hearts leap with joy. Why? Bethlehem. Fulfilled prophecy. Um, this, remember, we, we learned this, that, that uh, it was foretold that Bethlehem would be the, the place where uh, you know, Jesus, would, the Messiah would come. In fact, uh, you can jot this down, you know, it's um, Micah chapter five, verse two. But thou Bethlehem, Ephrathra, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be the ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old and from everlasting. Little cryptic little statement about this. It, it, you know, Bethlehem, you have to understand, that really would be like us saying, something really big is gonna happen to thou, O Dundee. You say, oh, come on, what big thing's gonna happen in Dundee? Come on, are you kidding? Portland, maybe? Well, maybe not Portland, but um, <laughs> nothing good, good happens there. Well, well, what about New York or, or Los Angeles? No, no, no. Thou art blessed, even though you are little, Dundee. That's kind of the vibe. They say, oh, out of you, out of little Bethlehem? Something good's gonna come from Bethlehem? That's kind of an amazing thing. And really that is um, the, the fulfillment of you know, this prophecy. And by the way, we're gonna see in chapter two here, fulfillment after fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Remember I've told you that some have calculated that there are over 300 specific prophecies that Jesus had to check the box to be the true Messiah. Um, and we're gonna give you like 12 of them in this chapter alone tonight. Um, so that's pretty fun. Bethlehem is definitely one of them. Now, um, speaking of going to Israel and stuff like that, uh, our group sometimes says, Brett, why, don't you, why don't you take us to Bethlehem? Well, there's a couple of reasons I generally don't go to Bethlehem. One, it was voted, true story, uh, um, there was a, a, a thing that some travel you know, show did saying the most disappointing destinations to visit in, in the world. And uh, Bethlehem was one of them, <laughs> and it's true. Uh, uh, and it's understandable why, but, but I've been there several times myself. I just don't take our groups there uh, because it's a disappointment. And also you might get rocks thrown at you and stuff. It, it's a little more test, testy there with the Palestinians. They control uh, this little area. But Bethlehem, the, the thing that people go see is the Church of the Nativity. 
And the church of the nativity, that's part of that disappointing thing. You walk into this church, you can see in this little picture here, there's a, see that little door that's at the far end of that courtyard there? That's going into the oldest church in the world. It is the oldest church in the world. Um, you say, well, that looks like a normal door. But if you, when you finally get up to the door, here it is right here. <laughs> it's like, are we in Alice in Wonderland suddenly? Um, you can see the archway of the original door there, um, but um, there's a little tiny door there. Now, the, the funny thing is, once you walk into this church of the, of, and I'll talk about the door in a second, but when you walk into this, the church is one of the weirdest churches I've ever seen. Is it because it's really old? Not really. It's because it's divided into three sections. We look in the sanctuary, you've got three very dif dif different, it's like, it's like you got, uh, you know, Pottery Barn, Toys R Us, and uh, what's the third one? Chip and Joanna Gaines, uh, Shiplap over here. And, you know, it's like there's three distinct decors and you're just, it gives you, for those of us that care about such things, you're kind of like, this is horrible. Three totally different looks. And, but all looks are kind of ugly. You see, what happened is, um, you know, when Constantine came there, of course, his mother Helena said, this is where Jesus was born. So of course that must've been the place. And so they, they built a church over it right around 333. I think it was dedicated in 339 um, AD. So it's an old, it's a really old church. Um, but the reason it's divided into those three sections, the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox all wrestled over it. And so this is our church. So they said, no, it's our church. Well, about 290 years ago, they came to an agreement and said, okay, you get this little half of or third, you guys get this third. And we, so they divided it up and you go in there and you see the three distinct and you see the Eastern Orthodox with their incense swinging over here and the Russian Orthodox with their black pointy hats and the Catholics. And it's just kind of weird. Uh, but uh, you're like, well, at least they're getting along. Uh, yeah, that's a positive thing to say. And in this place, there's things hailing, hanging from the ceiling. And um, some people, I think they're just, I'm not easily like impressed by stuff like this, but you walk in and you're just kinda like, it looks like somebody just got some junk at some yard sale and, and hung it up from the ceiling. I'm sorry, but that's what it looks like to me. And as someone who kinda likes things to look sorta clean, uh, nobody's dusted them off for like 300 years, I don't think. So there's like dust piling on these trinkets from a yard sale. Uh, and decorating the church of, uh, of the nativity. And then you go down in this little hole and you see this star and the star was ripped off by the way a few hundred years ago because, well, that's a whole nother story. But, um, but they believe that Jesus was born in this little cave there in Bethlehem. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We don't know for sure, but it could be. Um, but, but all that to say, it's very gaudy and very weird. And it's, not, it's really not worth seeing if you ask me. I, I think the most important thing is Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Uh, and that's what, that's what we like to celebrate when we go to uh, you know, Bethlehem. Um, I, I have taken a few groups to Bethlehem over the years, but just not to this church of the nativity. Now what's with this uh, door of humility or the small door? Um, people that don't know the whole story, they're just told, well, you have to bow and as you're going through the door, you have to go to be humble. But actually there's a story there. Um, uh, during the crusader era, um, the, there, there was a lot of raucous uh, behavior. It was like uh, Bethlehem was like Dodge City in the Old West. 
And, and uh, this church, this really old church, was constantly being marauded by certain people. And the crusaders were sick of the, the enemies or you know, the Ottomans or whoever riding into this church with their horses. They'd ride in and kick around the pews and, and destroy stuff and then ride out. Uh, you know, and, uh, and, and it became a real problem. So they decided to make the door small enough where a horse couldn't fit through. And then they called it the door of humility so that you'd have to walk in, uh, you know, humbly and stuff like that. Uh, one of the reasons this church still stands, interestingly enough, there's actually a fun story there. Um, the Persians, uh, I think that was around 700 um, AD, when the Persians were conquering that region, they came in and they were gonna crush that building just like they crushed all the other buildings. They were destroying all the holy buildings. But when the Persians came in, they saw mosaics on the floor um, that, that shocked them. And you can still see some of these mosaics today, which is kind of amazing. But they saw these mosaics. They're the little stones that make beautiful pictures on the floor. But they saw, shockingly, a bunch of Persians in their clothing, wearing their gear and stuff. And they're like, what's up with this? And the guys, the, 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 the priest, the quick thinking priest of that day said, well, this, this is a Persian building. This is, you, this is your guys' building. And the Persians were like, oh, cool. So they didn't destroy that church. Um, does anybody know why did they see themselves on the mosaic of the church of the nativity? The Magi, that's how they were dressed. The Magi were dressed like the Persians because they were Persians. That's, that's what saved this little church of the nativity. So that's one of the fun things you can actually see at this church. But this is the kind of stuff you see when you go to Israel. And you say, well, there's, there's the church. You gotta see that. Oh, there's so many other things you have to see. There's not enough time. But anyway, that's kind of an interesting thing. But um, all that to say, verse one. Wow, we gotta move. Here we go. It's, it's, it's almost time to close up. Uh, verse two, it says saying, that, that, now remember, let's back up because we've lost context. <laughs> now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem saying, so these are the wise men saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now, can you imagine what Herod's thinking about this? Because who's supposed to be the king of the Jews? Herod. Um, for we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Oh man, I love this. The word worship in the, in the Greek there is an interesting word. Proskineo is the word. And it means to turn towards and kiss in token of reverence, to bow down in homage and adoration. That's what this word means. And when we talk about worship, that's what it means. I, I feel like some, somehow we've done a disservice to this word worship because in modern days that means, you know, praise and worship music. Um, and it, it is that, worship can be done in music. When you read the, old, the, 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 the New Testament, I should say, um, how many times is worship mentioned like in the context of the band and the drums and the worship director and all that? Zero. Um, now, Jesus sang one hymn there on the um, upper room. So there's a worship service right there. Um, and then we also know that um, the, the book of Ephesians and Paul talks a little bit about how we're gonna sing songs and spiritual songs, you know, speaking to one another, songs and hymns and spiritual, like it's something we do to each other, reminding people of what the Bible teaches through songs. So that's another, so two. And then you could make an argument there's gonna be worship in the book of Revelation around the throne of heaven, three. One, two, three, and it's not a major thing. You know what's amazing to me is some people decide, well, I'm gonna to go to that church because they have really good worship. Yeah. Can I just say that's stupid? 
Sorry, it's just dumb. You should not choose the church you go to based on their worship and if, is their drummer amazing or uh, does it sound really great? I would take a church with a person who had an out of tune guitar and a person who could barely sing a lick as long as their doctrine is solid, as long as the teaching of the word is solid. Because uh, man, you can't, you can't do a good church if you don't have good doctrine, no matter how good the music might be. And I think we're seeing some of that crumble, by the way, in front of us, uh, if you know what I mean with some of the movements of worship that's going on today uh, that has to do with all about the band and the music and the songs and stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. I love worship with music, guitars. I, I, I don't think it's wrong to do that, but it's a matter of emphasis on what's really important. Um, I love our worship team because they understand the importance of doctrine and they understand that that's the priority. And, and our worship team, you know, they're the first ones to say, Pastor Brett, if you need us to cut a song because your teaching is gonna be a little longer today, I know that almost never happens, but <laughs> no, but I love that our worship crews are always like, man, we can ax one, two songs because you know, the, we, we understand that what you're doing in the, through the Bible study, that's, that's kind of the priority here. And I, I love that our, our worship team gets that. I, I talked to some of my pastor buddies and they're like, yeah, it's kind of hard. I feel like the worship team sort of, uh, is more important and most people come to our church because of our worship team. And I, and I think, ooh, there's just some backward thinking there. But worship can be with songs and drums and guitars and all that stuff. Bible says, make a joyful noise, Lord. The Old Testament does defend, um, you know, the idea of loud singing and music. The Old Testament does defend that more, which is kind of cool. But, but we have to be careful to keep the priority of what is worship. It can be music, but it also could be giving of your money. It can be serving in the children's ministry out in the parking lot. That can be a form of turning and just kissing the Lord, a show of affection to the Lord. We, we've, we've kind of hijacked the word worship to mean music, but it actually means something different. What do you think that the wise men did when they turned and worshiped the Lord? Do you think they busted out the guitars and got their amps and woohoo, here we go. Time to praise Jesus, you know? That's not what they did. So how did they worship? Just keep that tucked away. Um, so, you know, all that stuff is, there's so many things. Now, um, the, the turning and kissing is something that you should kind of remember when you want to worship Jesus. Um, and I love that these guys are coming to worship. They're not coming for something, to get something. They're actually coming to give worship or to turn and kiss. Uh, I love that. Even though they were from a pagan place, pretty cool. So they come and say, we are come to worship. Verse three, when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Interesting, why was Jerusalem troubled? Because Herod was troubled. And when Herod's troubled, uh, you're all in big trouble. That, that's the problem. Uh, Ju Judea, by the way, was by the Romans considered no man's land. That's the place you didn't wanna have to be stationed in the Roman empire. Um, and so, um, and, and by the way, they were worried, the Romans were always worried about losing the, the area of uh, Judea from any number of groups of people. So it was a very tense thing for the Romans. Um, so we're gonna see here in verse four, it says, and when he had gathered all the chief, chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where the Christ should be born. Um, the wise men were seeking to worship, Herod was seeking to destroy. It's funny how people, there's often, you see those same lines today in culture and politics and attitudes of people, same thing. Verse five, and they said unto him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah, um, 
For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Now you notice there, these, these religious leaders, the, the people of Jerusalem are, are quoting their Hebrew Bible, Micah chapter five, verse two. That's the scripture I just showed you. Um, if you recall, it's right there. I'll put it up here just so you, in case you missed it. Um, this is the scripture we read earlier about Bethlehem being the, the place where the Messiah would come. But what's amazing to me, just a, a compare and contrast, um, these men traveled miles and miles away because of this event. And Herod's asking, well, where's this gonna happen? And the, and the people of Israel, they know the answer, but they don't care. They could care less this event's happening. It's the, it's the pagans from Babylon that are suddenly interested and earnestly seeking the Lord, but not the Jews. They don't wanna, you know, get up out of their chair and lift a finger to figure out, well, is there something we should know about our Messiah coming? Uh, there was a great deal of apathy that we see here in this story that's kind of painful uh, when we see what the Jews are doing. Um, they, they knew, but they didn't care enough to investigate further. Um, you know, I, I worry that the, the church, if we're not careful, we can do the same thing with Bible prophecy today. Well, you know, we don't really care about that. You know, you know, if you ask some people, when is the second coming of Christ and what is the rapture of the church? A lot of church people say, well, yeah, some, sometime in the future, Jesus is supposed to come and he's gonna get, but we don't think it's kingdom. But most, most churches don't talk about Bible prophecy, but that's all they know. I liken them to these Jews who could kind of care less. They were sort of apathetic about the first coming of the Messiah. And the Bible warns us not to be apathetic like that, but to be watchful, waiting, ready. Um, don't we, you know, the, the church, it's, it's easy to have this, well, we don't wanna work too hard. We don't wanna do Bible doctrinal study. Are you kidding? Wednesday night Bible study? Who's into that? <laughs> it's kind of cool. I love that you guys are all here willing to do the work to go through the Bible together. That's a huge thing. A lot of churches aren't willing to do the heavy lifting of, of going through the Bible. Um, the Bible says this of itself in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. You know, study to show thyself to prove unto God a workman, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Um, this is work going through the Bible, but um, the work pays off. And that's what I love about these wise men. They're willing to do the work. They, they went hundreds and hundreds of miles across the desert. The Jews need to go five miles and they're not willing to get off their rear ends and go over to Bethlehem. Can you imagine that? I'm shocked. Um, don't be arrogant about the Jews though. There's coming a day where all their eyes will be open and they'll realize what they've done. Well, um, not, you know, relax, chill out, you know, whatever. It's like, go deeper, get, get busy. Whatever you do, do heartily as unto the Lord. That's the attitude that we need to have. Well, all that to say, verse seven, um, it says, then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for this young child, for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may also come and worship him also. Liar. Uh, what, a, what a wacko. Um, he, he doesn't have any idea of wanting to worship, um, but he wants to destroy. In fact, let's read on, verse nine. And when they had heard the king, they departed and lo, the star, which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Man, don't you get it? These magi, these wise men, they're into this. I mean, they, 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 they're just pumped. They're like, wow, here it is, there's a star. 
Now, why a star? Um, I love this, and boy, we can talk about this at length, but I love how the Lord meets these magi right where they're at, because they're into astrology, which is kind of a pagan thing. It is a pagan thing. Um, but the Lord says, oh, you, you guys like to read the stars? Well, check this one out. That's what the Lord's, and they have this star. Um, what was the name of that documentary that was, it was actually pretty good about the star of Bethlehem. Does anybody remember that? Star of Bethlehem, I think that's what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> It's actually pretty good. There's some, there's some cool stuff out there. There's some cool documentaries about what perhaps this is. Let me just give you a quick thing on, on my take on this. Because um, a lot of times these documentaries will try to explain the uh, celestial activity and what actually happened there and they'll explain it. And that could be true. Uh, there's some really legitimate uh, attempts at defining what actually happened on that day of the birth of Christ. And there's some really cool stuff. I'm not gonna diminish that. But you also have to understand my attitude. If the Lord wanted to make a bright, shiny light floating around Bethlehem like this, he could also do that. I don't have a problem with that. Because I have a problem with some of the things, like I know they're trying to say, well, this happened and the alignment of these planets would have done this and this, and I get that. But, but I also think it was weird that they kind of saw the star and then they followed the star and it went over, not only, not only the town of Bethlehem was shocking, but over the very place where he was born. Uh, that doesn't seem like some star way out there in space would say, I think we're over that star now. You know, that'd be hard to tell, especially in those days. Um, so I, I always like to just, the reason I take it back to just the, a miracle of God, because we don't have to explain how it happened. It is an interesting discussion and it is uh, worth time and, and investigation. I'm not diminishing that, but I also just believe it could have just been a magical light that God made floating around Bethlehem. It could have happened that way too. But either way, these guys are realizing this is something way past themselves and they're rejoicing. Uh, why were they rejoicing? Um, because they actually had reached their destination after hundreds and hundreds of miles and maybe they really were wanting to meet this king of the Jews, as it turns out. You gotta love that. Um, so um, it says there, uh, then in verse 11, and when they were coming to the house, uh, now wait a minute, I thought it was a cave, probably was. But when I came into the house, do you realize that most scholars believe this could have been like a couple years later? Like, like you gotta get this out of your mind that your Hallmark card, your Hallmark cards have done all kinds of damage to your thinking. Um, you, you, you think the wise men were there with the cattle lowing and the wise men and the little drummer boy, of course, biblically was standing there. Um, and, uh, and that's what happened. Well, that's not what happened. And the wise men weren't at the nativity scene of Christ, but probably maybe even up to two years later. Um, I'll show you why in just a second. There's, one, there's several reasons we think that. But, but they come to the place where they were staying in the house um, and there, when they saw the young child with Mary and his mother, they fell down and worshiped Mary. Oh, wait a minute, my bad. It didn't say that. Uh, I had to say that because uh, there's some groups that get this really wrong. Uh, let's just remember this. It says, when they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary and his mother, uh, Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. That's important. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Um, now, the, uh, this, is, um, this is one thing you gotta remember. Be careful about the exoneration, over-exoneration of Mary. Mary's an amazing girl. I talked about this on Sunday. But do we pray to Mary? Do, do, do we uh, deify Mary? Absolutely not. Um, she was an amazing girl. And I bet if she were able to come here and tell you guys, um, 
that the weeping toast was just the toaster did something uh, weird. It wasn't her uh, or whatever. But um, <laughs> people have done all kinds of weird stuff around Mary. Um, forget about praying to the saints, praying, you know, uh, you know, depending on what kind of Catholic you are, I've had Catholic, well, we don't pray to Mary. Well, kind of you do. Uh, and just, just check out what your Catholic, you know, which Vatican II Catholic are you? Roman Catholic is kind of important. But, but all that to say, here's what the Bible actually says in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Um, we only have one mediator. We don't have pastors, elders, priests that are mediators between you and God. Oh, we can come and assist you and, and point you in the right direction and share with you what the Bible says and give you a, you know, a hug and say, man, look to the Lord, look to Jesus. But if, if we're putting ourselves in this place where we're a mediator, like you come and confess your sins to us because we have the power to sort of forgive sins, no. Uh, the Bible does say confess your sins one to another, but those people that you're confessing to don't have power to forgive sins. Only Christ is the mediator between God and man, according to 1 Timothy 2.5. Um, the Catholics took a step, by the way, in the right direction during COVID. Did you see this? There was tons of articles about this, but in the Christian Post it said, Pope confess sins directly to God if no priests are available during virus pan pandemic. <laughs> There's an idea. Man, you can just take your sins directly to God. As it turns out, that's what they should have been doing all along. Just saying. Um, sorry if you're Catholic, you're raised that way, but I'm just saying, we just, at Eighth Greek, we, we don't take um, any church's doctrine. We take the doctrine from the Bible. And, and I, I would encourage you, if you're a Catholic and you're thinking, Brett, I, I can't believe you're talking about the Pope that way, don't be offended. Just look and search the scriptures and see if what I'm saying is true or false. Because um, the Bible knows nothing of some of those things that the Catholics do. And by the way, the Protestants do a bunch of wacko stuff too. Um, we gotta get back to the Bible, back to what does the, what does the Bible really teach? Because man, I can defend the Bible. I can't defend church history. Um, but anyway, all that to say, I love how these guys come and worshiped him. Um, but there's also, notice the three elements here that they give him. Uh, they open their treasures and they presented him to give gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, and um, this is just quickly, as we're running out of time, gold speaks of, in the Bible uh, and, and also in the world, uh, deity and royalty. Um, and it recognizes Jesus as king, uh, the gold. Frankincense is that element that was used on the altar of incense. Frankincense always speaks of the priesthood in, the, in that culture and, um, and the altar of incense there in the temple. Myrrh was the ointment or uh, you know, the element that they used for the burial, uh, embalming people. Uh, it was in, and uh, it's kind of an interesting thing because this, this speaks of Jesus fulfilling what we've talked about in previous studies, that Jesus would be prophet, priest, and king. He would be all three of those things. Um, and only Jesus could fulfill all three of those things. Any king that tried to fill even two of those things was disciplined by God, except for one, Melchizedek, remember him? And that was a, a Old Testament appearance of Christ himself. So that's a whole nother thing there. But um, now it's interesting because the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Do you remember in our study in Isaiah, we came across a similar passage speaking of the Messiah um, where it said there in Isaiah 60, verse six, the multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Epa, and they uh, from Sheba shall come, and they shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. Um, anybody know why they didn't bring myrrh in this Isaiah 60 thing? Anybody wanna take a stab? 
right, it was, this, is, this is talking about the millennial kingdom. And during the millennial kingdom, they're gonna celebrate Jesus with the same elements minus the myrrh because Jesus already died for our sins and that part of his uh, ministry was behind him. We're, but we're gonna celebrate him as both prophet or, or king and priest in the millennial kingdom. Just, just an FYI for those of you guys that were with us in Isaiah, kind of helps connect some of those dots. Um, so uh, what did J Joseph and Mary and Jesus do with the gold? Have you ever wondered that? I believe we have the answer coming up right here. Um, they, they're in big trouble and they're gonna have to get out of Dodge real fast uh, or Bethlehem as it were. Check it out. It says in verse 12, and being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. So these, these magi, they know they gotta get while the going's good because Herod the Great is ticked because he, he, you know, they didn't tell him where the Messiah, king of the Jews would be. Verse 13, and when they were departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto Joseph in a dream saying, arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt and be thou there until I bring thee word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Then he, uh, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. Remember I told you there's like 12 things that Jesus fulfilled prophecies. There's another one of them, that he would live in Egypt. Now, if you're a Jew uh, and you're thinking of your Messiah, what in the world would your Messiah be doing in the land of Egypt? Was Egypt a place where Jews liked to go? No, because that's where they were slaves for 450 years in their past. Um, it's like the Jews going back to uh, you know, Berlin saying, hey, we just want to do a little vacationing here in Berlin. Um, it's, like, it's, it's like you don't really do that. But why would Jesus be in Egypt to fulfill prophecy? Um, and and um, by the way, that's Hosea 11.1 1 that says, you know, the prophet Hosea said, when, um, when Israel was a child, th uh, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. It's a messianic prophecy that Jesus would live in Egypt. Why did he go to Egypt? Because of Herod the Great's threat against his life. Um, and so uh, how did they afford to go down to Egypt and live there for a few years? The answer, gold, uh, probably. And maybe the frankincense and myrrh. Those were very valuable uh, items. So, um, and by the way, Jesus going to Egypt, or, or if you're just a Jew hearing that your Messiah went to Egypt, that makes no sense whatsoever unless you know the story of Jesus, the Messiah which is again, just proof that Jesus is the Messiah fulfilling. Uh, so, so far we've seen stuff like Micah chapter five, two, Bethlehem is the town, uh, gold and incense, Isaiah 60 verse six. And, um, and then we're also gonna see now next fulfillment, tragically the death around Jesus's birth in, in uh, Bethlehem, uh, which we'll see from Jeremiah 31, 15. Check this out. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coasts thereof from two years old and under according to the time which he had diligently acquired of the wise men. Um, then was, the, was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy or Jeremiah, the prophet. Notice your uh, reference there in your margin if you're a Marvin reference Bible, Jeremiah 31, 15. It's fulfilling this prophecy, saying, verse 18, in Ramah, there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping, great mourning, Rachel <clears throat> weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not.
Um, so this is that, that Jeremiah 31, 15 that spoke this weird prophecy from Jeremiah. Like who would have imagined, who would have thought this prophecy would have been fulfilled um, in this way, the lamentation and bitter uh, weeping. By the way, um, you know, Matthew chapter 10, there's this interesting thing about Jesus. Um, if, if, if we as Christians, we have to be careful not to present Jesus. Man, if you become a Christian, everything's gonna be rosy and petunias once you become a, a Christian. It's all gonna be wonderful. That's not really what the Bible says. We have to be careful not to present it that way. We forget and we present it because we know that if you accept Christ, you get to have eternal life in heaven where it will be rosy and everything will be perfect. But until then, the Bible doesn't really promise that. In fact, you might have the sword, bitter weeping and lamentation when Christ is brought into the scene. Just like this prophecy, um, you can jot this down. We don't have time to go over the whole thing. Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39, um, Jesus said, think not that I've come to send peace on earth. Well, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus come to say peace on earth, goodwill toward men? Well, yes, peace ultimately. But he says, I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I'm come to set a man at variance against his father and his daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Has this happened to any of you guys? Some of you that accepted Christ and your family just kind of said, yeah, we think you're wacko and you're not welcome to go to Thanksgiving anymore. Uh, uh, that happens, sad to say. Brother against father, you know, a man's foes, verse 36 as he goes on, shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And like Jesus kind of says, when you accept me, and you can read the, the whole thing, but you, you, there's gonna be division, the sword chopping. Um, and that's what happened. Even when Jesus was born, suddenly there was lamenting and death. What an irony that the Messiah would save the whole world from its sins. Also, um, you know, kind of brings not peace. And then you might say, well, this goes against some of Jesus' other teachings about peace, like John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you, not as the world gives, give I to thee. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. But, um, but the peace would also include division and even trouble. And, and, uh, and so the beauty of the Christmas story also has tragedy and death around it. Um, and sometimes the truth about Jesus will divide family and old friends and even old coworkers. Um, the Bible actually tells us about those things. Second Corinthians four, eight and nine says, when you become a Christian, you'll be troubled on every side, yet not distressed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. Second Corinthians one, three and four says, blessed be God, even the father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, who does what? Comforts us in all our tribulation. Doesn't say he's gonna keep us from tribulation. He will comfort us through the tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for our light affliction is but for a moment, worketh for us far more exceeding and eternal weight in glory while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You're, you're working out a weightiness when you go through suffering and trouble that's gonna be in eternity, not as much right here. So why become a Christian if I will suffer? The answer, because you won't suffer when you get to heaven. Heaven is eternal. This life is just a short but a vapor. So it's not about the here and now, it's about being saved for all eternity. Well, verse 19, we gotta finish this up. It says in verse 19, uh, but when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream 
to Joseph. By the way, Joseph has four dreams already. He's quite the dreamer. <laughs> um, but he gets another dream while he's there in Egypt saying, verse 20, arise, take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the, in the room of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go thither, notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into parts of Galilee. Now, uh, Galilee is sort of podunk land, uh, hick town to the Jerusalemite or to the people, even from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a bigger town than anything that was up in Galilee at that time. But um, notice there, um, it says here in verse 23, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth um, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Another prophecy fulfilled. He went from Egypt, fulfilling prophecy, to Nazareth. Does anybody remember, what's the root word in the Hebrew Old Testament that talked about Jesus being from Nazareth? Netzer. Right, that's a good thing to remember that uh, because it's kind of throughout the Bible. In Isaiah 11:1, 1, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The word branch there is a unique Hebrew word. The word is netzer, as you would say it in the Hebrew. And it means branch, which is speaking, it's one of the names of the Messiah that the Old Testament talks about. The shoot, the sprout, the branch, figuratively, also a descendant is the idea there. Um, not to be confused with the Nazarite vow, but when it said he shall be called a Nazarene, it means he's gonna be from Nazareth, Sprout Town, which is the name of that word Nazareth. It means the town of sprouts or shoots or branches. Um, and Jesus would be called a Nazarene, not because a Nazarite like Samson, uh, but a Nazarene who lived in Nazareth. Are you guys with me on that? So Nazareth, Nazareth is another fulfillment of prophecy. These all prophecies are seen in the Old Testament um, that are perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. So um, he, he shall be called, a Nazar, uh, called Nazareth that, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken. He'll be called a Nazarene. What a cool chapter. I mean, we could have spent days, weeks in this chapter diving in, but there's kind of a, a, a quick look. You say quick, but I need a haircut. Um, <laughs> uh, after, that, after that one. Uh, well, uh, thanks for your patience. We're covering some ground. We're getting some work done, amen? Amen. Lord, we pray that you just continue to bless this study in Matthew. I pray that we'd uh, just have wisdom to just see the beauty of your word and how these prophecies were fulfilled very perfectly in the person of your son, Jesus. So as we go our way, Lord, I pray that you'd fill us up. Bless the rest of this week as we serve you and walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.